here, um, Southern Vancouver Island, a lot of the places where I'm looking for shells, marine shells, there's also things like mammoth tusks that are being pulled out. So you get these environments where you've got really cold ice age periods and then you get warming, what are called interglacial periods where there's less ice. My name is Christina Barkley and I am a Banting postdoctoral fellow at the University of Victoria and I'm a paleoecologist. Hi there, welcome to episode 13. My name is Liz and today we are sitting down with Christina Barkley and she is going to be talking to us about some of her research that she does in the paleoecology realm. I'm really excited for you to hear it. Like with all of my episodes, there are resources available on my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast. On there you'll see some pictures and some diagrams that'll help you if you'd like to follow along with this episode. But other than that, grab a coffee and enjoy. So I'm a paleontologist. So I kind of do a little bit of interdisciplinary stuff. Um, I'm interested in conservation paleobiology. Um, so that's basically using the fossil record to help understand the present conservation issues. So by learning from the past, we can see patterns in the past and then basically apply that to today. So mm -hmm. that's my main area of research. Oh, cool. And where did you start and how did you get to where you are? Uh, it's kind of a long story, I guess. <laughs> but um, basically, I knew I wanted to do paleontology since I was about eight years old in grade two. Uh, <laughs> we did a project on fossils and I did a project on ichthyosaurs and I kind of got bit with that paleontology bug. And I grew up in Saskatchewan, so I spent a lot of time outside playing in the dirt and learning about animals and plants. Um, and then, so I decided I wanted to pursue my uh, bachelor's degree in paleontology at the University of Alberta, uh, which at the time was basically the only place in Canada where you could get an undergrad in paleo uh, directly. Um, and I thought I was going to study duckbill dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, Alberta is really well known for their duckbill dinosaurs. And, um, but then somewhere along the way during my degree, I had an opportunity to work on this project that involved um, these animals called brachiopods, uh, which are a bivalved animal. That, so they have two shells. They look like a clam on the outside, but their internal organs are very different and they're not related to clams really at all. Um, and they had all these little tiny encrusting organisms that lived on their shells. And so these animals that I was looking at were about 390 million years old, covered in these tiny little microscopic organisms. And um, the idea that these complex biological interactions could exist um, <laughs> at such a small scale and then so far back in time really kind of hooked me and I was really fascinated and that's been basically since then has been one of the major driving things of my career is how do organisms interact with one another um, and then when I decided to come back for a PhD so I did my master's looking at these encrusting organisms mm -hmm. and these brachiopod hosts as well. Um, when I came back to do a PhD, I wanted to try something a little bit different, and I was really interested in, in this idea of conservation paleobiology. So basically how I think of it is applied applications of the fossil records. So um, 
the idea that you could actually use fossils to help solve current problems. You know, when we're thinking about things like climate change and human impacts, that was a really interesting idea to me. So um, that's kind of how I got started yeah. in that area. <laughs> so kind of long-winded, but yeah. Um, so that's basically what I decided to do for my PhD and what I'm doing now. And so I look at um, basically how predator-prey interactions are influenced by things like climate change. So ocean acidification, for example, is one of my major areas of research as well as human activities, so things like overfishing as well. And I mostly work on um, in marine invertebrates, so things like crabs and snails are kind of two of my main groups mm -hmm. that I work on. So invertebrates meaning they don't have a backbone? Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Do you want to just like maybe tell us what ocean acidification is? Perfect. Like in terms of however you'd like to explain it. Yeah, so ocean acidification is uh, basically the result of carbon dioxide emissions being absorbed by our oceans. And so what happens is um, basically the more CO2 there is in the atmosphere, um, it wants to equilibrate between <laughs> the ocean and the atmosphere. And so it ends up, what ends up happening is our oceans absorb a lot of that carbon dioxide that we are emitting and basically this creates a chemical reaction where the pH or the acidity of our oceans increases. And one of the consequences of that is that there's less materials available for organisms to build their shells. So um, pH is a measure of the amount of hydrogen ions mm -hmm. in a solution, if you remember like the pH scale. Right. Um, so the more hydrogen ions you have in a substance, the more acidic it is. And hydrogen ions bond really readily with all of those carbonate ions that are a building block of calcium carbonate skeletons. So the more hydrogen ions there are, the less carbonate there is, and the harder it is for things to build their shells. So a um, little so bit of chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> and how does that, what, like how does that play into your research? So that's a really great question. Um, Basically, the idea is that um, shell building organisms, so if you think of like a clam or a snail, uh, their main line of defense against predators that crush shells are their shells. And so if their shells are impacted by changes in ocean chemistry, that impacts their ability to ward off predators. So things like crabs is, uh, in modern context, is mostly what I'm looking at. Um, and so, yeah, basically if they, don't have as strong as shells or they can't grow their shells as well, they're going to be more vulnerable to predators. And if crabs, for example, can all of a sudden eat them more easily because they can crush their shells, that can have huge sort of trickle up impacts on food webs in mm -hmm. marine environments. So that's sort of big picture what, um, why we're concerned about these shells. Yeah. And also if you think about things like the build shells, so things like oysters and clams, they're really important food sources, not only for crabs, but for us as well. And so being able to understand what's happening sort of at the base of the food chain is really um, kind of important. Yeah. And 
we can actually look at that through time because things like mollusks have such a great fossil record because they have these hard parts. So mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the connection with the fossil record is we can actually go back and look at these changes through time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, so you work on kind of crabs, right? Mm -hmm. So how old are is the fossil record that you're looking at? Oh, that's a great question. So... Um, in terms of crab predation, mm -hmm. crabs have been around since the Cretaceous, so kind of the, or the Mesozoic, I suppose. Um, so at the same time as the dinosaurs, that's mm -hmm. when crabs shell with shell-crushing claws kind of start to show up. However, the fossil material that I'm looking at is much, much younger, mm -hmm. so I'm looking at sort of latest Pleistocene material, mm -hmm. so no more than about 100, 150,000 years ago and oftentimes here in BC that those rocks are quite a bit younger um, but I'm not actually the interesting thing is I'm not actually looking at the crabs themselves mm -hmm. I'm looking at their prey so things like snails and clams and the reason we can get at information about crabs is because these snails and these clams will have scars on their shells from failed crab attacks and that can tell us a lot of information about the crabs themselves. So I'm using these scars that crabs leave behind to learn a little bit more about crabs because crabs themselves don't actually have a very good fossil record because they don't really have hard parts oh. in the same way that snails and clams do. Mm -hmm. So if you think about if you've ever been out on the beach um, or if you've seen like a lobster shell or a clam, uh, cr sorry, a crab shell, they're quite thin and they're pretty easy to break. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes the only part of a crab that we get left, if we get anything at all, is the very tips of their claws. So they have a very poor fossil record. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't have anything, uh, any evidence of the crabs, the only way we can learn about them is through these scars that they mm -hmm. leave behind, which is evidence of their behavior. Yeah. I'm gonna ask you a paleontology question. Could you kind of explain how kind of these shells and the hard parts of these organisms are fossilized? Like how does it go about creating a fossil? Um, sure, uh, so basically to form any kind of fossil, the first thing that you wanna happen after you die is to get buried really quickly. Um, and oftentimes, basically as you're sitting in rocks, so say you're the little fossil and you're sitting in the mud that you've been buried. Um, there'll be things like groundwater with mi different minerals that come through, through time that kind of start to replace different parts of your body and that will end up preserving you. So that would be the traditional sense of a really old fossil. The interesting thing with these Pleistocene fossils is it's mostly still the original shell material. Um, just because they haven't had that much time to have all of these chemical changes happening as groundwater is coming through and changing the chemical structure mm -hmm. um, or just yeah having the chemical structure of their shells change through time so it's usually still a lot of the original shell material but in the case of a crab shell most of the time it's just going to get destroyed either through breakage um, or you know it might get eroded, different things like that, but the shells are just so thin that they don't usually preserve. Right. But then a, like a mollusk or a snail, their shells are thicker. Yeah, their shells are a lot thicker, mm -hmm. so they're easier to preserve. And they're chemically, their shells are a little bit more stable too. So that sort of, if you think of the 
uh, a shell, they're kind of made of this like calcium carbonate material uh, and that tends to be quite stable and it doesn't um, change. Whereas something like uh, a crab shell is made out of a proteinaceous material. So it's made out of proteins, it's called chitin. So it's mm -hmm. more like your fingernails. So if you think about your fingernails versus a shell, one is much more like a rock than the other. Oh yeah. If that makes sense. So yeah, they don't preserve near, crabs don't preserve nearly as well. Maybe you can give kind of like an overview of your current project and you know, what you're doing, what a day in the life of your research looks like. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the current project that I'm looking at is trying to understand uh, how crab populations in BC have changed through time and how they've maybe been affected by human activity. So either things like climate change or potentially overfishing. And the idea with this is to look at fossil material as well as archeological material and then modern material. And again, the, the material, when I say material, I mean uh, snails and clamshells. And what we're looking for are those evidence of crab predation marks. So on a snail, um, let's say you're a crab and you want to attack a snail. What you do is you typically try and crush the shell. And if you can't crush the shell, then they switch to a sort of a chipping or a peeling method. So mm -hmm. imagine like peeling an orange back. Oh yeah. Um, and because they've got these very pointed claws, it leaves this really characteristic sort of triangular or wedge-shaped mark uh, chip on the shells. Mm -hmm. And this method of chipping or peeling at the shell um, is not always successful. So most predators aren't actually very successful. They have a pretty high failure rate. Um, some of the highest success rates of predators are some kinds of wildcats, and they're only about 70%. So failed predation is actually super duper common. And failed predation would be what exactly? Basically that the predator doesn't win and that the prey gets away. Oh. And that's when you get these little scars forming. Oh. So um, yeah, basically the crab will try and attack the snail. It'll make this little chip mark. If it drops the snail, it can't find it again because crabs are kind of clumsy. Um, or if it gets attacked maybe by its own predator, like mm -hmm. an octopus or an otter or something, it'll drop the snail or the clam, and then that snail gets to live another day. And the other great thing about um, snails is that, or clams, any kind of mm -hmm. mollusk, is that their shells can will grow by what, by what we call accretion. So basically it's kind of like a tree, almost like reading tree rings where it's like the whole story of the animal's life is recorded in their shell and they're getting bigger as they grow. So you can actually see multiple scars sometimes. Um, but basically what we can do with these is pick them up, uh, pick shells up off the beach from a certain area and count the number of scars. And there's been a lot of research to show that at least in modern contexts, that the number of scars is a pretty good proxy for how many crabs there are. So by counting the number of scars through time, we can actually, it's a really simple way of trying to reconstruct crab populations. So if we saw fewer crab scars today mm -hmm. than in the past, that might tell us that those crab populations have declined. Oh, okay. But is there like a chance that the snails that you're looking at have just been like really good at hiding from the crabs? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so there is potential when we're looking at really long time periods mm -hmm. for things like evolution to occur. 
um, maybe either through changes to their shell. So sometimes shells can get thicker or they might change shape. And we see that a lot in clams and snails in particular since crabs first showed mm -hmm. up on the scene. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think their behavior necessarily <laughs> changes if you're yeah. looking at the same species. So if you do this totally. for multiple species and you see the same mm -hmm. pattern, then that's sort of what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. So I have um, at least four different species that I'm interested in looking at. Um, so yeah, if they all show the same trend, then that's probably pretty good evidence. What species of crabs are you looking at? Um, so the crabs themselves, uh, that's a great question. We don't know for sure who's oh. making the uh, claw marks. So that's mm -hmm. part of my research is we're trying to tease out that information a little bit more. So the main crabs that do crush shells are things like rock crabs, um, particularly red rock crabs. Mm -hmm. It's a species called Cancer productus. Um, and Dungeness crabs are the other thing. So, um, but the other interesting thing though is that now we have this invasive crab called the European green crab um, that's a little bit smaller than Dungeness and rock crabs, but is, you know, just showing up in BC over the last like 20 or so years mm -hmm. and in some places only very, very recently. Um, so one of the projects that I'm working on is trying to understand if there are differences in the shapes of scars or the size of scars that mm. the different crab species make but right now we don't know it's just a general crab signal um, but it's of these two commercially and recreationally important fishery species mm -hmm. the red rocks and the dungeness crab are the kind of two main ones right and that would kind of be is there like a lot of overfishing or farming that plays a role in the impact of your research yeah, so I'm expecting to see some declines and I'm expecting to see them fairly recently. So basically since the 90s, commercial fishing of crabs has really increased all over um, the west coast of mm -hmm. North America, all over the world in fact, and BC is no exception. Um, so I'm expecting if we do see anything that it will probably be very recent, whereas the archaeological and fossil material might be more similar to one another. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I just published a paper uh, recently where I was looking, doing the same project in Southern California, and we did find from comparing Pleistocene material versus today's material of this one species of snail, we found fewer repair scars, these little predation scars on the modern snails and it correlated to potentially a 10 to 15% decrease in crabs um, in Southern California. And this kind of jives with a lot of the stories that we're hearing mm -hmm. from concerned fishermen, from in concerned indigenous uh, groups. So this is just a piece of supporting evidence to hopefully say, hey, maybe we need to uh, manage these fisheries a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of basically what I'm hoping to do is find this sort of first pass early evidence that, hey, these are areas of concern or um, populations of concern. And then from there, hopefully uh, enact some more strict management practices because basically crab fisheries have been considered low priority. Mm -hmm. Like they're not a huge concern. People are like, oh, they're fine. But... Um, there's a lot of recent research showing that crustacean fisheries, including crabs, all over the world, um, even within the last 20 or 30 years, have really increased. And so mm -hmm. the question is, can we keep just fishing and expect those numbers to stay the same? Yeah. 
and we don't really know because uh, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of historical information about crab fisheries because yeah. people have generally just kind of not it's not been on any anyone's radar yeah so the Pleistocene mm -hmm. can you kind of give us an idea of what the world looked like at that time Oh, the Pleistocene is a really interesting time period because this is when you're getting a lot of glacial activity. So um, think of, yeah, like the Ice Age uh, mammals. So uh, even around here, um, southern Vancouver Island, a lot of the places where I'm looking for shells, marine shells, there's also things like mammoth tusks that are being mm -hmm. pulled out. So you get these environments where you've got really cold ice age periods and then you get warming what are called interglacial periods where there's less ice um, and it kind of just goes back and forth and oscillates a little bit so most of what I'm looking at is going to be those interglacial periods right. so kind of like more similar to today mm -hmm. than ice age um, just because I'm trying to minimize the changes um, in environment uh, so yeah but yeah, Pleistocene is a really cool time period. <laughs> um, but so if you're looking at snails in this interglacial period, mm -hmm. how did the snails react to the glacial times? That's a great question. Um, so typically when there's huge changes in environment, and this is even true too, we're seeing this in terms of climate change today, uh, organisms typically uh, in marine organisms have a very specific like thermo temperature range where they can live at and so if their temperature changes they're typically going to move mm. they're going to go elsewhere to the environment that they like um, and so when you get these glacial periods basically the snails aren't going to be there they're going to have moved south or wherever oh, okay. um, and then they'll come back or, or they maybe if they haven't necessarily moved in the sense of like they can't journey thousands of miles that's sort of like anthropomorphizing it mm -hmm. a bit but basically their range will change. So where the populations can live will maybe shift. Um, so those that are living in the northern habitats where there's ice are maybe gonna die um, and not be there anymore. And then you're only gonna see them in more southern habitats. Mm -hmm. So basically it shifts with that sort of temperature range. Right. Um, yeah. And so would that kind of be applicable to today with if you have you know, for example, here mm -hmm. off of Vancouver Island in the North Pacific, let's say it starts warming up, would you maybe see, for example, snails who like the water a little bit colder moving upwards? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's one of the things that people who study climate change impacts mm -hmm. are studying is um, as our temperatures are changing, how our species range is changing. And we're seeing um, a lot of species that are adapted to warmer environments showing further showing up further and further north than they've ever been before mm -hmm. um so yeah and then same thing you know there's concerns a lot of like climate uh fisheries modeling um they'll look at changes to ranges mm -hmm. and so yeah um basically what we expect to see is that as temperatures increase if we keep kind of on this direction that we're going as temperature increases, uh, all of the species ranges are going to start shifting northward towards the poles because they're trying to stay at that temperature that right. they like. Okay, and that makes sense. And I guess also the fossil record is applicable there mm -hmm. and, you know, studying movement over time and... Oh, okay. Yeah, so, it, yeah, it's basically... It's like applicable everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's a lot of what... Uh, climate reconstructions, one of the things they can use, they can use lots of different techniques, but 
um, in glacial interglacial periods mm -hmm. that's one of the ways we can help kind of construct the environment is by where the range of those species are based on their temperature preferences mm -hmm. so if we say okay their range is similar to today then we can maybe conclude that the temperature back at that certain time period was similar to today yeah um, there's other pieces of evidence too but that's one especially early on that was one technique that was used to try and kind of understand what environment was like during yeah. these glacial and interglacial periods that are going back and forth quite quickly in terms of a geographic or geological time yeah. scale and quickly in terms of geology is not as quick as many people <laughs> think. That's one thing that I remember just thinking in terms of like my own research and in my studies is like when we say quick in geology it's usually thousands and thousands yeah, of years. Exactly. Um, so in these interglacial periods how much time was kind of between them in the Pleistocene? Um, it depends on the time period but typically they range anywhere from like 20,000 years to 40,000 years, mm -hmm. something like that, 10,000 years, yeah. it depends. Some are longer or shorter than others, but yeah, yeah uh, we're talking on the range of like thousands to tens of thousands of years. So yeah, quite long in terms <laughs> of human time scale. But then I also get teased by other paleontologists when I say I work on the Pleistocene because they're like, oh, well, they're not really fossils because <laughs> it's very much younger than something like a dinosaur, for example. Yeah. Oh, totally. And so because it's kind of on that tens of thousands of years scale, you don't have, you know, the same snail living through these interglacial periods. It's kind of their offspring of offspring of mm -hmm. offspring. So it kind of gives you that idea of kind of what you're talking about before in terms of, you know, this warm water blob in the Pacific. It's such a small little snippet of time where, mm -hmm. you know, one snail, he could have lived through that. But in the Pleistocene, the same snail is not yeah. living in a glacial and then interglacial period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to some paleo-oceanography. I think that it's really cool to dive into these topics because it's things that aren't always associated with marine science. So I'm super stoked that Christina sat down with me and chatted with me. Next week will be a continuation of our chat. So tune in to get part two and hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcast so that you do get those notifications. I know some people have messaged me saying that they've like missed the episodes, but make sure that you get those notifications. I also do post updates on my Instagram page at Below the Tide Podcast. So you can follow that to see the resources and pictures and just keep up with what I do for the rest of the week. But other than that, I hope you have a great rest of your Thursday.